Welcome to Slash Into Me. Slash Into Me, the only podcast that fuses horror movies and Dave Matthews Band. I'm Chris Brady. And I'm Pat Hoskin. Today, we're going to be talking about the 1981 Rick Rosenthal film, Halloween 2. And, as always, we'll dip into some DMB when the time is right. Let's indulge. Well, I, I mean, this is funny. Like, one, one thing that we did not mention in the first episode that we definitely, I feel like, need to mention is that uh, we planned this specifically as a series, and th- the series is we're going to watch all the Halloween films and <laughs> in order. Yeah, and, we, um, we never mentioned that. Yeah, we didn't mention that. So I, I think it's important, you know, because that's what the show is. And then when we finish that, uh, depending on how ambitious we're feeling, we'd like to do the same for the Friday the 13th series as well as the Nightmare on Elm Street series. Um and kind of go movie by movie. Sometimes they'll be paired together. Sometimes they won't. But uh, to discuss these things and then, yeah, and then match them to Dave Matthews Band songs. That's that's the whole conceit. That's it. I mean, that's the idea. That's, that's what everyone's been asking for. So that's what we're going to deliver. So welcome back. This is episode two. Uh, if you braved through the first one, we are now going to tackle Halloween 2, the three years later sequel to uh, John Carpenter's incredible film halloween made three years later but takes place directly after the first one yeah but seconds after uh, literally takes scenes from the end of the movie and then continues which is awesome i uh are there other movies that do that yeah um a later halloween will do it i believe yeah i was just gonna say but... i think i think four and five are paired that same way because they they really echo the original film and the original two films specifically but yeah I, there's probably sequels that do that i can't think of any off the top of my head this is like i actually saw a really good tweet today that said the closest feeling to being an, a ghost is when you're listening to a podcast and the hosts can't think of a trivia bit a bit of trivia uh but you can and you're powerless because they can't hear you <laughs> and i feel like that's happening right now what a 21st century realization speaking of ghosts how about in the first halloween (laughs) when michael puts on the sheet and pretends to be bob and he looks like a ghost we didn't talk about that last episode yeah i guess we didn't we talked about the phone call and her getting strangled and her screams being mistaken for an orgasm but yeah i guess we didn't mention the fact that michael myers donned himself in a sheet managed to cut eyes out of the sheet put bob's glasses on over the sheet and then strangled her, which is like not only diabolical, strange, and psychopathic, but would take a considerable amount of effort in a small period of time to do. It's like very Etsy. It's very crafty, you know? What's going on out here? Call the police. Tell the sheriff I shot him. Who? Tell him he's still on the loose. Is this some kind of joke? I've been trick-or-treated to death tonight. You don't know what death is. But so the, one of the first things that I that actually I'm glad that we kind of segued into that because one of the first things I wanted to bring up was how in Halloween 2, which just a quick stat sheet, was released in 1981, 
The original came out in 1978. The sequel was directed by Rick Rosenthal, not John Carpenter, although John Carpenter and Deborah Hill did write the film. But the, the thing that I found most glaring in the terms of the difference between them is how Michael Myers is portrayed and his right, characterization right. in the sequel. Like, like on paper, he's so similar uh, to how he is in the first movie, but in practice, he's so different. He is almost reckless and um, just kind of a more of a bruiser, more of a dude who is just going to kind of like smash and bash and do all these loud, really violent things. Whereas in the first movie, he's like legitimately just more of a voyeur, as we talked about. He just like watches. He kind of tries to mimic, but he doesn't really like announce himself in these really loud, brash, violent ways like he does in the second movie. I think a big thing that I found so ridiculous about the second movie is that is near the end um, when he's coming in from outside of the hospital and he just like smashes his way in <laughs> through the through the glass. <laughs> and I was like... I was like, all right, we're getting to like Jason Voorhees territory now. Yeah, well, he doesn't even like throw an elbow into the glass. Like he just walks through it as if it's like the beads in front of my bedroom window when I was 12, you know, or bedroom door. Before I get into my commentary on, you know, my take on the new Michael Myers, I did want to go back to what you were saying about John Carpenter not directing the movie. Uh, Part of the reason he didn't direct the movie is because... Uh, he didn't want to. It was probably the main reason. Uh, and I have a quote here. I, I pulled up this old interview that he did after the movie was made, uh, and they were asking him about it. And he said, quote, I didn't think there was any more story, and I didn't want to do it again. All my ideas were for the first Halloween. There shouldn't have been any more. Michael Myers was an absence of character, and yet all the sequels were trying to explain that. That's silliness. It just misses the whole point of the first movie to me. He's part person, part supernatural force. The sequel's rooted around in motivation. I thought that was a mistake. However, I couldn't stop them from making the sequels, so my agent said, why don't you become an executive producer and you can share the revenue, end quote. <laughs> Which, that pretty much ends the podcast. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's like uh, in Spaceballs when Mel Brooks, as Yogurt says, I'll see you in Spaceballs to the search for more money. <laughs> But really, though, I mean, there is an element of that. Like, he didn't want to do it because he wanted to maintain the artistic integrity of it. But, like, he did. And he wrote it. And he, you know, he was there during the making of it. It feels very different from the get-go, even though it takes place seconds after the movie ends. And, um, and yeah, I think that does play into how Michael Myers turns out. You know, I think that... Obviously, there's a big factor that Michael Myers was being played by a different person. What what was his name? Dick. Uh... Dick Warlock. <laughs> yeah, Dick. Incredible War- name. Dick Warlock, who uh, for 25 years was the stunt double for Kurt Russell, who would later be in the thing that John Carpenter was working on while working on Halloween, too. Uh, yeah, you're right. There's a, you know. Certainly in the first movie, there are moments where you question, is this an unstoppable force? Is this a thing that, you know, humans cannot reckon with? But you also see his face and you see him as a little kid and you, and now he's become this brute. It's a bit jarring. The tone of the movie echoes that because within two minutes, you see blood on Loomis's finger, whereas you see literally almost no blood in the entire first movie. Yeah, for sure. That's a huge, huge difference. The, the It's a sequel, so the number of kills is like quadrupled. The 
the gore is kind of amplified. I saw it referred to sort of as a splatter film instead of a slasher film. Yeah. And I don't... Yeah, I read that as well. And I don't know quite if that's... I mean, maybe for 81 standards. Um, But yeah, there's definitely like the gore is there. And and, and it's like so clear when we go... Especially when we move to the hospital setting, which is where I I guess like 60 to 65% of the movie takes place. Yeah, a lot of the movie. Like characters keep getting introduced, whether they're nurses or paramedics. They just keep getting introduced so that they can be killed later. That is so interesting because Laurie Strode is in also so little of this movie until really the end because it's mostly like Loomis's movie until he kind of goes away and then the the back half of the film, maybe the last third of the film, is really Laurie's movie just as she's kind of alone in this darkened, really creepy, scary hospital, which I actually find that to be super terrifying. Like the hospital itself just as a place is such a good place for the shape to be because there's a lot of long hallways, there's a lot of like dim lit areas, and that's the kind of stuff that like those are the kind of settings that the shape needs to be in in order to be maximally scary. My one qualm is that he gets the shape gets so much screen time, it, he starts to become less scary when he's shot from like middle distance. I think he he's really scary when he's in the background, um, and he's really scary when you can like kind of see his white emotionless face uh, via the mask. Even he gets a number of close-ups too, and they're less scary because. The only real like close up he gets in the first movie is when he picks up the phone and kind of like hears Laurie on the other end. So it's like basically the more of him that's exposed, the less creepy he gets. But the hospital itself I found to be really terrifying and also the boiler room specifically like that whole thing I thought was like really well done and really scary. Yeah, the well, the setting is great. I mean, for as much as this movie misfires, it is probably the second best movie in the series. I mean, that's arguable, but it's beloved by many and many people thought it was a perfect sequel. And, you know, I even read that some viewers were like, if you watch Halloween one and Halloween two back to back, it's like watching a play. And I don't agree with that. But there are things that nail it. And one of those things is the hospital. Like hospitals are scary because when you're in a hospital, you automatically are in this sort of like heightened sense of stress and nervousness and you don't feel like you're in control to begin with. And they're like eerily sterile and clean and everybody's dressed in kind of these old timey, you know, like it brings back, it's reminiscent of almost like a sanitarium. Like when you see the sanitarium patients in halloween one wandering around the field that's kind of how the nurses are dressed like in those white smocks and yeah so it's definitely a scary place and i i would agree 100 percent that the boiler room scene is the best scene in the movie because i think what it does and what rosenthal was able to do in that scene is just perfectly mimic and echo the successes of halloween one uh you know the way that laurie is lit up in the red light when she's standing trying to get on the elevator it's like very uh it calls to you know the brake lights in halloween one when michael myers escapes and breaks into the van and one of the other things that's worth noting as just an overall success is uh the shape's ability and the way that he kind of like makes it a staple in this movie that he will not run but he will always catch up um i think that's probably something that people famously always you know associate michael myers with Uh, And this movie really is the point where that becomes just a hard fact. I'm sorry I left you. Are you all right? Why won't he die? Get away! 
away from him. But he stopped breathing. No! So in the first movie, it ends with him being shot six times and then still escaping. But you don't necessarily see him escape. You do. You just see the ground that he was lying on moments before now empty. And that's so creepy because you don't know how. It's full of mystery. How did he get away? Is he dead? What's going on? But then in this movie, he legitimately gets shot like a bunch more times, including in the eyes. <laughs> and like, <laughs> and he's still okay. And like that becomes a little problematic, I think, for me just... But, I mean, it's kind of the nature of the genre. Something that I don't think gets talked about enough is when he scalds the one hot nurse to death uh, in the hydrotherapy tub. He His hand is down there with her face, and yet his hand emerges yeah. scot-free. As if he's impervious to the boiling water. Yeah, I wrote that down when I watched it as well. Part of it is probably that they were just trying to film the scene really quickly and they didn't want to deal with it and just overlooked the detail. But also, maybe it was considered like a bit of a nod to the fact that he's a little superhuman and can withstand things like gunshots and scalding water and won't get harmed. Uh, I don't I don't know that I really buy that, but um, it's interesting because you were talking about the hospital, and I just uh, was watching an old interview where they, they said that filming there was really difficult because it was it was a hospital it's in pasadena california but it was being it was vacant at the time and unused and so they were able to use the whole building um but it was really close to an airport and like every five to ten minutes there were massive amount of planes flying over uh and it would ruin all the shots because you could just hear these planes and so they had someone stationed on the roof of the building with a walkie-talkie telling them when there was a break in plane activity so that they could quickly shoot a scene. And so I think little things like that, you know, maybe they're oversights on Rosenthal's part, but maybe it was just a logistic thing too. Um, And the movie was way more expensive than the first movie because of the success of the first movie, which was essentially made on a shoestring budget of like $300,000 roughly, which made a lot more money than that. So then the second one was able to be made for I think two and a half million, which is a lot of money. That's a huge increase. Part of that is due to the producer who we did not mention last episode, regrettably, who we did mention Irwin Yablons, but we did not mention Mustafa Akkad, who is hugely responsible and important in the Halloween franchise. His his money that he contributed and his being a financier led to this massive increase and then yeah you do get okay we get more kills we get a a cooler location to film one thing that's interesting is that to keep the details so precise to the first one they had uh jamie lee curtis wear a wig because her hair had changed yeah she'd cut her hair down she kind of looked like she was in like the police or something right it was very early 80s like new wave thing and then they had they were able to track down the original mask which i think nick castle had uh, and they were like, okay, cool, this is great, we got the same ass. Although it definitely fits Dick Warlock differently. Yeah, well, so Castle had it, obviously, during the filming and of Halloween 1, and when he would be off screen, he would just shove the mask in his back pocket, and that caused it to like deteriorate a little bit. And then in between the three years, for most of the time between the two movies, it stayed under Deborah Hill's bed. And she, I guess, was a heavy smoker. And so when they pulled it out, it had yellowed a little bit because of the cigarette smoke. Um, 
and yeah, Castle, you know, Warlock is a different guy than Castle and kind of a broader head or whatever. And so it fit him a little differently. So it looked different, which I liked. I mean, I know it's supposed to be immediately after, but it was kind of cool that it had a little bit of a different look. Yeah, and it, it definitely, it has a slightly different look, but you can tell it's the same mask, whereas like pretty famously the rest of the films in the franchise have such a, they struggle so hard with uh, getting the mask right. Because if you're trying to recreate something that, was not like intentionally created really necessarily you're it's just going to be terrible to do and some of the upcoming films and we'll talk about this when we get there but have like legitimately laughable masks so that's oh yeah gonna be, that's gonna <laughs> be <fun>. amazing <laughs> and the reason that they had to do that is because at the end of the filming of halloween 2 warlock was like hey are you guys going to use this mask like i would kind of like to keep it and they were like nope we're not going to film any more movies with michael myers he's done forever <laughs> and so he took the mask he took the jumpsuit he took the scalpel and he just took him home how do you how do you feel about the scalpel by the way i mean his his main uh weapon in this movie is a fucking surgical scalpel <laughs> i uh there's the scene in the early part of the movie where he sneaks into the old people's house which is a nice scene. I think it's good. And he takes the knife off the counter and you see like another gratuitous um, Coke flash. Yeah. And so you think, okay, the rest of the movie, he's going to have a knife. And then he goes on to kill in like very creative ways, which is strange. I'm getting to the scalpel, I guess. It's strange that he kills in such creative ways but it kind of sets the tone for a lot of movies i mean slasher movies at that point were doing that too friday the 13th was doing it and many movies had done that before but like it it seemed like a very clear indication that the creators of this movie were like okay we're going to join the ranks of the rest of these movies he's not just going to stalk in the shadows with a knife he's going to like kill a security guard with the sharp end of a hammer or he's going to drain all the blood out of a woman through an IV. <laughs> yeah, that, that again, so much um, time. It just takes so much time. There's a few moments in this movie where I legitimately laughed out loud. I had, so to back up, I had seen this movie as a child because I was a big fan of Halloween and I had followed it up and I probably watched this movie twice, I would say, but it has been five or 10 years since I had last watched it. So watching it the other night was refreshing for me, but it was also in a way kind of like watching it again for the first time. And there's some scenes where I couldn't help but laugh out loud. And one of them comes early on when I was just mentioning when the shape Michael Myers creeps into these old people's house, takes the knife, um, and then you hear the old woman scream. And then immediately it cuts to a teenage girl on the phone with her friend. And she says, <laughs> she says, oh, he probably got angry and just started beating his wife. No big deal. <laughs> like, right. Why, right. Why is that in there? Why does that happen? Like that? Yeah, there's, there's kind of like weird um, moments of, of casual cruelty. One of the other ones being when the Michael Myers lookalike gets chased into the street by a gun brandishing <laughs> Loomis, hit by a car and immediately incinerated against a, 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 a van, like a, a TV van. So this is probably my favorite, uh, like fun sort of Easter egg fact about Halloween 2. I don't know if you caught this. The kid who they eventually figure out was the kid who got incinerated against that van was Ben Tramer. And Ben Tramer in Halloween 1 is the one that, Lori is being laughed at because she wants to go to the dance with him. 
So, oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh yeah, right? It, which is like kind of, you know, if you're a big fan, you're like, oh, that's cool. But then you think about it for a second and you're like, oh, God. <laughs> like, yeah, Ben Tramer really gets the, he gets the shit end of the stick there. <laughs> yeah, he sure does. And nobody's worried about it. Yeah, they all leave immediately. There are children and parents out in the street. A boy, <laughs> a boy gets smashed between two vehicles, lit on fire, and d- dies instantly. And they're like, well... I think we got him. <laughs> and then, yeah, but then they all leave because, and, and like, <laughs> just leave. Yeah. Like, it's Loomis no, killed that kid. It would be the most kid. traumatic, horrible experience to witness. Also, Loomis really hams it up in this movie in a way that he didn't really. He's actually like fairly reserved in the first one. Like, he, he's pretty stoic and he delivers most of his lines with like a, like, not like he's kind of hamming it up. And then in this one, it's like, so it's like, wow, like chef's kiss. Like, wow, he can really turn it on. And when he turns it on, it's it's really, it's really fun. Oh, it's so fun. And like actors who were on set would say Pleasance was really serious about it. it. Like everybody was a little bit worried because, you know, as we mentioned in the last episode, he was an established actor and he was sort of like the draw to movie one. They paid a lot of money to have him in there so that people could have a name and a face that they recognized. And everybody was a little bit worried that he was going to approach, especially the sequel as something that was a bit beneath him, but just kind of like means to a paycheck, but he was really serious about it. And he would spend like all his time in his trailer, just like rehearsing his lines. And then when he came out onto set, he was really you know, strict about everybody. Just he he knew everybody's lines. He knew his lines, and he just like, you know, it was very businesslike for him. As you said before, there are some people who think that if you watch the first film and this film back to back, it kind of seems like Act One and Act Two of the same play. That might be true. I don't know. I've never watched them back to back, but if that is true, then I think Halloween Two would be like the second act when at intermission everybody just started doing rails of coke. The music is really keyed up in new ways in this one uh, with like new synths and it's like a sharper kind of like grittier sound. Loomis is kind of, yeah, like we said, he's a little bit more unhinged in this one. Michael Myers is a little different. I felt a little pandered to at a certain point because uh, like some of the real terror of the first film comes from the silence and from the fact that uh, as John Carpenter said in that quote, he was the absence of character. Whereas if you pair these like, really sharp like kind of things with everything little thing he does then they start to be less um, about him and way more about like gotcha right and like you can legitimately feel involved in a scare where a weird shape sits up in your bedroom and like comes after you but you can't quite get as involved when you're watching a hypodermic needle get inserted into someone's eyeball like (laughs) there's just something about that that's like very hollywood and very and also you know like it's worth being said that we are watching this as people in 2018 who have seen decades worth of horror movies it's important to note that but at the same time like it's gratuitous. Like, there's not, there's no way about it. Dr. Loomis, please listen to me. There's a file on Michael Myers that nobody knew about. I've seen everything. No, no, it was hidden, sealed by the court after his parents were killed. Now, after the governor heard what happened tonight, he authorized Dr. Rogers to open it. What file? It isn't fair. They should have allowed you to examine everything. That girl, that strode girl. Michael Myers' sister. 
She was born two years before he was committed. Two years after, his parents died and she was adopted by the Strodes. They requested that the records be sealed in order to protect the family. Jesus, don't you see what he's doing here in Haddonfield? He killed one sister 15 years ago. Now he's trying to kill the other. When I was a kid, I remember watching this on TV. I think sci-fi used to play it quite a bit. The, I'm sure you came across this as well, like in reading about the film, but there's actually like some alternate scenes that get showed in the TV cut. Some of them are kind of wild. Like there's one where uh, apparently it's a flashback to 1963, shortly after Michael had been um, locked up in this mental facility and Loomis comes in and just kind of stands there for a second. And Michael is staring out the window kind of in this blank expressionless way that he Loomis characterizes in the first film. And he just says, you fooled them, haven't you, Michael? But you haven't fooled me. And then, like, that's the whole scene. And, um, mm-hmm. like, on some level, I remember that. And on some level, I also remember the school scene where, you know, they where Loomis and the police go to the elementary school that Michael has apparently broken into, written this Celtic word in blood on the chalkboard, and, car- and, and stabbed a knife through a crayon drawing of a family through the sister specifically. And I remember like thinking that both like thinking that one of those was a dream or something because it just seems so crazy out of character for the movie but it turns out that the school scene is very much true and it ends up leading to like this kind of canon defining scene in Halloween 2 that ends up like changing the trajectory of what would be the rest of the series which is the huge reveal that Laurie Strode is Michael Myers' sister dun 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 we have arrived i mean that changes everything right it completely changes the ball game like it just like we were saying before it gives this character who was like carpenter said the absence of character he was like a nothing shape he was the shape it gives him purpose and it gives him reason and it gives like it gives him yeah like a trajectory toward revenge whereas before he was just the embodiment of evil so despite the fact that those scenes were cut out and only used in the TV version. There is a flashback in the movie and you see it really quickly. I don't know if it's supposed to be a flashback or like a weird dream that Lori's having, but you see this second where she is standing with a woman as a child. She's a child. She's standing with a woman and the woman like sort of scolds her and is like, didn't I tell you you're not my daughter? (laughs) Which like... Yeah, it's it's very traumatic thing to for anyone to say to anyone. John Carpenter also talking about writing this movie basically said that he just hit a wall creatively. Like he was like, okay, all right, how can we how can we grow this? What are we gonna do? And so he just was drinking like a six pack of Budweiser every day while writing the script, apparently apocryphally. And then he was like, okay. And then he got to that part and he was probably like, she's his sister. <laughs> well, I don't know. Again, I don't know. It could be apocryphal. I don't know if it's true. Uh, but I read that there is a theory that he stole this from Luke, I'm your father, from Star Wars. Oh, well, I I mean, listen, I'd probably believe that because that's just like, if we're talking 1981, yeah, hell yeah. Right, exactly. Like, everyone's on the Star Wars train. But also, like, if you have insane writer's block, what are you going to do? Think of the most popular movie you can and then rip it off yeah yeah that's like one of the two big developments in this film and we already touched on the other one but then the second one is in that classroom scene 
with that Celtic word. They pronounce it as Samhain, but I looked this up and it's apparently pronounced Samhain. Oh, really? Yeah, because I felt self-conscious about saying it wrong on a podcast. Um, but <laughs> it's, it's apparently Samhain. And uh, they introduced this whole element of Celtic mysticism that will then end up later being like a huge, huge plot point in the later films, which it's, yeah, and it's just like, it sounds, it, again, it sounds so crazy. It sounds like it's ripped right from another movie, but then it ends up basically like, driving the plot of when we get to f- not so much four but when we get to five and six and six specifically um the one that paul rudd is in it ends up driving the plot and kind of the characterization of michael as this mythical undead creature as opposed to uh just this force of evil that i get i mean and again it's like it goes hand in hand with loomis's uh the devil's eyes sort of characterization but it, it takes it in another direction that brings in druids and all sorts of other shit in order to appease the gods, the druid priests held fire rituals. Prisons of war, criminals, the insane, animals were burned alive in baskets. By observing the way they died, the druids believed they could see omens of the future. 2,000 years later, we've come no further. Samhain isn't evil spirits it isn't goblins ghosts or witches it's the unconscious mind we're all afraid of the dark inside ourselves to move along a little bit i want to talk about some more of these characters uh specifically uh just like my fascination with bob in movie one let's just go ahead and bust right into the character of bud how do you feel about Bud? Go Bud, the guy who says, uh, where are you going, college boy? <laughs> well, that sounded kind of Southern, but, you know, he, he does say that. Maybe the best line in the movie, uh, Amazing Grace, come sit on my face. Can we agree on that? <laughs> yes, I think um, that's where, again, it starts to seem so much like a regular uh, horror film. Yeah, exactly. Like, that's kind of... Just, that's when you know that this dude is going to get killed. Yeah, it's a really super exaggerated form of hearing Don't Fear the Reaper, maybe. You know? <laughs> like, take, takes you into the real world, yeah. makes you laugh a little bit. Uh, speaking of the music specifically, uh, something that this movie does incredibly well is it uses the song uh, Mr. Sandman by the Cordettes. Um, yeah, I was going to ask you about that. What is your take on that? I love it. First of all, so the movie opens and closes with Mr. Sandman, which is kind of strange because that song and the idea behind that song feels like it's almost more fitting for Nightmare on Elm Street, which didn't exist yet. But it brings about this imagery of like dreams and sleep. And, you know, in the movie, there's that moment where Laurie's like, don't put me to sleep. And you're like, am I watching? Is Freddy Krueger going to come out? Like, but, Yeah, yeah. And the boiler room at the hospital too. But I love that. I mean, I think that's something that horror movies continue to do is they take something that in pop culture is just like the most seemingly innocent and cute thing that can be imagined. And then they make it strange because of the setting that you hear it in. It reminded me of, uh, did you ever watch the movie Jeepers Creepers? Oh, dude, I was literally just going to bring that up because I think it's, yeah, that's that's exactly what it reminded me of too. Yeah, like taking a, a very sweet saccharine seeming, like I think 50s, 60s pop song and and yeah. and yeah, pairing it with something that's pretty sinister. Yeah, it's very, very Jeepers Creepers-y. So moving on to different characters, uh, something that obviously needs mentioning 
uh, Dana Carvey. Dana Carvey shows up in Halloween too. He's the guy with the blue hat, right? Who's uh, with the news crew. Yeah, he does not have a line. It's the first movie he was ever in. Uh, and the woman just tells him to go get a statement. And if he can't get a statement, to get a statement anyway. And then he runs away and he's never in it again. I thought I heard that he. There are did two have jokes that can be made about you, Dana. I thought Carvey, after she says that to him, he goes, uh, being in Halloween too. One of them is Turtle because that's the joke that anybody can make about Dana Carvey in any situation. But the other one is that it's his first collaboration with Mike Myers. Oh, see, and that's the better joke. The whole idea with this show is we're going movie by movie in the Halloween series, and then we'll conclude this portion of it uh, with the brand new film Halloween that's coming out. In 2018, uh, hits theaters October 19th. It's David Gordon Green is the director, penned with Danny McBride of all people. Who is David Gordon Green's like pal? I mean, they've they've done a lot of stuff together. But with Jamie Lee Curtis reprising the role of Laurie Strode, which is notable for many reasons that we'll get into. Yeah. The what that film is, it's called Halloween, but it's actually essentially a new beginning to the first film so it's, it's almost kind of a direct sequel mm-hmm. to the first film mm-hmm. essentially erasing halloween 2 from that it's 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 a new branch on the tree it's erasing everything and every other movie after it right which means that if that's true then laurie strode is likely not michael meyer's sister in this new one so that's important to mention we'll find out i mean that's i think a lot of people are interested to see what they're going to do with that right i think you're right i think they'll wreck on that but i think that a lot of people you know, despite maybe some of the aesthetic differences between Halloween 1 and 2, I think a lot of people love Halloween 2. And it's for everyone to just say, nope, it's gone. <laughs> like, kind of crazy. It's a bold move. It's a very bold move. Uh, real quick, I guess before we move on to the Dave portion, what's your favorite kill from the movie? Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. I, I think it's probably the third nurse who gets killed. So she's the one who's not the main nurse, Mrs. Alves, who gets drained of her blood. And she's not the kind of uh, other nurse who gets the needle uh, injected into her head. She is the one who makes it toward the end and almost makes it out of the building. Uh, but Michael Myers comes up behind her and scalpels her in the back, then lifts her up. And then her shoes fall off, which is that's what makes it my favorite yeah, kill. Yeah, those like white wooden clogs. Yeah, it makes it such a nice touch of like that's again. I think like it reinforces the kind of brute strength element that we were talking about with Michael Myers this time around. I think that kill is really effective because it harkens back to the Bob kill from movie one, like that shot, that close up shot where you see his feet dangling after he's been stabbed into the wall. The same thing, you see her feet dangling, but then there's that little bit of extra, you know, the shoes fall to the ground. What what is yours? To be honest, I was a big fan of the IV drip, uh, but I'm not going to say the IV drip just because for the sake of the podcast, we need to discuss the hot tub. So Nurse Karen and Bud go down to the hydrotherapy room to make whoopee, and Michael Myers files them down and kills them both. Bud's kill is really good because it all happens through this sort of opaque, foggy glass, and same thing with the nurse kill that you just mentioned, like, and the same thing as all the kills in movie one, less is more. Like, you don't have to grossly see Bob's blood splatter all over the camera screen. Like, instead, it's scarier because it's in the background and you're looking at this super hot girl in a hot tub. And then without her knowing, 
her boyfriend's being killed. He also dies in like six seconds, it's, which is really funny. But I, I realized to keep the, the pace moving for that shot, you kind of need to do it. Yeah. And then similarly to the Bob scene from movie one, Michael Myers comes up, puts his hand on uh, Karen's sort of shoulder and the top of her chest. And she's like kissing his hand because she thinks it's Bud. Moments before that, he had turned the heat of the water up to like 120 plus Fahrenheit. Uh, you know, I... I've been in hot tubs. I think they're supposed to be around like 101, 102 maybe. So 120 is pretty hot. That'll do it. Uh, And then he dunks her head in and out of the hot tub and like her skin scalds off and peels off. And it kind of looks like like when you open up a grapefruit and there's that sort of weird like white matter that flakes away. That's what it looked like. Passing time with you in mind. It's another quiet night. Feel the ground against my back Counting stars against the black Thinking about another day Wishing I was far away Wherever I dreamed I was You were there with me Sister, I hear you laugh My heart fills we were, we, Me and you were texting about this a little bit earlier before we recorded this and almost it sort of began as a joke um that we would bring in the DMB portion of this episode by talking about one specific song that is called Sister, which is very relevant to, obviously, the film for the reasons we keep saying. But it's funny in, in another way because the song is so sweet. <laughs> and it's like, it's just this very lovely little ode that Dave wrote to his sister, Jane. It's almost like a lullaby. Yeah, for sure. It. it it has these this kind of twinkling nature to it that you, you can tell it's full of a lot of love. And so the origin behind the song is, is pretty good. I think it dates from around 2005, 2006, um, which would have been around the time they had just recorded Stand Up. They recorded Stand Up with this guy, Mark Batson, who was like a pretty hip-hop-minded producer. So a lot of Stand Up kind of was pumped up and it, it was... Dave was playing a lot of like baritone electric guitar and... That was the song. The song Louisiana Bayou is on there, and it's all pretty like they started kind of to get down with this like kind of uh, down homey, sort of gritty, bourbon swilling country kind of uh, influence. And it was a big party. But meanwhile, Dave was also still writing really sweet songs and these kind of acoustic based songs. Uh, there's a really good interview that Dave did with David Marchese from New York Magazine this earlier this year, where he says he remembers writing this song. He says. I remember being in the studio with Batson. Some friends were there too. And man, they were playing the music loud and having fun. But I left and I went into this little isolation booth and I wrote what I think is one of the best songs I've ever written, which is a song called Sister. It's about my love of my little sister, a genuine thank you to the universe for making someone who knows me so well. After I wrote it, I went back to the party in the studio and said, do you guys mind if I record this song I've got? And I sang that little song about my sister. And after it was dead silence, then Batson said, damn, that shit was gangster. And I was like, that's a very nice thing to say. I think it was pretty gangster too. So, um, <laughs> It's funny because it's just, it's just a sweet song and it's like, it's like all edge is removed. It's this very earnest song in ode to his younger sister, Jane, which I think is very, very beautiful. Or it's a terrifying song about his younger sister, Laurie Strode. And I have some lyric examples here. Uh, I pulled up the lyrics and I highlighted a few lines. Uh, There's three in particular I want to read. The first one is, Thinking about another day, 
wishing I was far away, whether they were dreams or worries, you were there with me. And so maybe that's a really nice song about his sister Jane, or maybe that's Michael Myers sitting in an insane asylum for 15 years, staring at a wall, imagining Halloween night when he wishes he was there with her. I do think this is where it gets problematic because Dave, growing up, had two sisters. He had Annie and he had Jane. Now, Jane is... Just like Michael did. Well, that's true. (laughs) But the fucked up thing is that uh, Annie was murdered by her husband. Um... So I feel like, yeah, yeah. and then they dedicated... You should acknowledge that. <laughs> they, they, they dedicated, uh, the first DMB album is Under the Table and Dreaming, uh, and they dedicated it to Annie, who had been killed, you know, um, pretty recently before that. And his sister Jane is, you know, he's, he's written songs about her before. There's a song called The Song That Jane Likes, which is a really early song as well. So he's always had this really um, open and generous relationship with her in his songs. I think another song that could work in the DMV catalog is the song Busted Stuff. Because if you think about it, Michael Myers is running amok, he's breaking shit, he's stabbing people, he's just, he's leaving a trail of busted stuff, (laughs) not least of which is the glass from the glass hospital door that he busts through uh, on his way to kind of finish off his enemies. So I think, you know, given the level of carnage and just mess i mean he really makes a mess when you think about it he makes a mess the elementary school at the hospital he makes a mess by uh immolating ben tramer you know which is his fault sort of in a larger uh scheme but it's more directly lewis's fault uh you know leave a trail of busted stuff is is that's michael myers man Uh, i do have one other lyric uh here it says playing like we used to play our kingdom will never go away feeling you beating in my chest, I'll be dead without you. I mean, come on, how much darker does it get? Or alternatively, how much lighter? I mean, that sounds that sounds really nice. Yeah, it's a very nice song. Everybody should listen to it. We'll play a little bit of it here, but you should download the whole thing. One of the things that we didn't do last time, but that we were talking about doing uh, for the remainder of the season is giving each movie a rating. Uh, because if you guys are listening to us talk about it, you obviously are interested in what we have to say about it. So ultimately, you must be interested in what we overall think as a piece of film. Uh, and we talked about doing a pumpkin rating. Yeah, that was a total joke, though. <laughs> you don't want to do a rating at all? Um, well, I, if we did, it wouldn't be a pumpkin rating. I can assure you of that. Uh, dude, I'm going to give you a Dave fact you don't know. So the first ever Dave EP... It had like six songs on it or something, like a lot of the classics, and then it had Song That Jane Likes or whatever. What's it called? Yeah, that, there's a song called Song That Jane Likes, yeah. No, 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 but what's the EP called? What are you... Oh, you're talking about recently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a gourd. No, it's not recent. No, no, no. The song... The EP is called Recently. <laughs> oh, Recently. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's called Recently, but... It's a gourd. It's not a pumpkin. No, no, no. It's a pumpkin because like there are limited versions of it where the guy's holding a pumpkin and it maybe it is a gourd but it's called pumpkin recently and it's like really rare and collectors have it and they refer to it as pumpkin recently it's weird because like i grew up listening to dmb so much on like burn cds that i rarely had the actual cds and actual like cover art so it's like weird i have to kind of retrain my brain to think about it that way but yeah you're right there was recently the ep is um I think a first EP, but second release after Remember Two Things. But yeah, it's, it's a great cover. There's a, 
there's an African-American man with a pumpkin or a gourd. And then there's yeah. a lighter skinned woman. I think she's Caucasian, um, topless, but she's got her hands over her breasts. And it's part of the, I mean, it's a very artsy kind of photo. It's, it's kind of funny to think of like paired with DMB who does, who kind of gets, you know, categorized as bro rock or whatever. But the song recently actually kind of discusses, it seems to be based on the lyrics and interracial relationship. It's the chorus is like people stare. Yeah. And we just ignore them. What's the use? And yeah. Anyway, so that's, that's, that's a, that's a pretty interesting fact. All right, Slash Into Me is made by me, Pat Hoskin. And me, Chris Rady. Make sure you follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We're at Slash Into Me. Uh, you can like us on Facebook as well, and you can find us and every episode on SoundCloud. You can send us an email, slashintome at gmail.com. Thank you guys so much for listening. We're going to continue on. Episode 3 will be about Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. Make sure you tell your friends. You can get it wherever you get podcasts. Thanks to Katie Nee for creating our awesome logo. Uh, We'll put a link to her Etsy page where you can check out more of her cool stuff in our description. Shout out my mom, Sue Hoskin, for watching Halloween with me in 2002 for the first time. And shout out Marianne Perez for driving me to my first DMB show in 2004. And shout out to my wife, Lisa, who watched the movie Halloween with me for the very first time. Uh, Thanks for supporting me in this strange endeavor. You gotta go to bed, right?